The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 12th day of December 2021. We're getting closer to 2022, folks. Old man, 2021 getting weak in the knees. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always across the way, ready for anything. A great show lined up for you tonight. Leading off, we'll talk to Mr. Islander, the great Bob Nystrom. Then we'll welcome in a writer from The Athletic, Arthur Staple. He's written a new book titled 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. I might be on the precipice of that, Brian, so I'm going to listen very closely to that. So sit back, folks. Relax, get comfortable, enjoy sports talk to New York tonight on GBB. Always great people, great sports talk ahead. And I always like to remind you about social media. We're out there on Facebook. We are on LinkedIn, and we are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk, and you can also follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all archived out on the website, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he played for the Islanders from 72 to 86. Best remembered, of course, as having scored that goal at the 7-11 mark of overtime to give the Islanders the 1980 Stanley Cup title. Uh, of course, four more, uh, three more after that one for the Islanders. And also one of the last NHL players not to wear a helmet. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Bob Nystrom. Bob, good evening. Hey, thanks so much. Good evening to you. Well, Bob, how do you feel about the moniker Mr. Islander? Does that embarrass you at all? Or are you used to it by now? How do you feel? No, I, I truthfully feel that that's the biggest compliment I could ever be paid. Nice, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's so nice. I mean, the fact is that, uh, you know, I felt to, to be a big part of, of the New York Islanders. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's gratifying to hear that they felt the, the, the same way towards me. Nice. I'm glad you feel that way about it because it's well-deserved. Now, you were born in Stockholm, Sweden. You grew up in Alberta. Who were your sports heroes as a kid, Bob? Well, you, you know, I, I needless to say, go, growing up in Western Canada, everybody plays hockey out there because it's so cold. Right. But, <laughs> you know, like every Saturday night we would sit down and watch, uh, you know, hockey in, in, in Canada and... Um, you know, I, I got to really like a, a number of players. I mean, the, the one guy that I kind of patterned myself after or tried to anyhow was Boom Boom Jeffrey Hunt. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was uh, he was a right-hander and, mm-hmm. and uh, had a, I mean, a hell of a slap shot. So I looked at him first, and then after the fact, when I got a little older and started playing junior, I really liked the way that Dick Hadfield played. You know, he's tough, strong, yes. and, and still able to score goals. And, and, he also protected his teammates. 
He did, Bob. Yeah, and I, I can definitely see the resemblance in the in the games there. He was one of my favorites as a kid too. Uh, my dad used to take me to see the Rangers practice before you guys came out uh, to the Coliseum, and, and uh, yeah, Vic Hadfield definitely. And uh, folks, you can Google Bernie Boom Boom Jeffrey on, and you'll see uh, yeah. a, a great Hall of Famer right there. Now, before we number go, five. number that's five. That's it. That's it. <laughs> now, before we go any further, I wanted to let you know, Bob, that Brian Taylor. Sends his best to you, Brian Taylor from Princeton, the Nets. Were, were you guys friends oh with, with, with any of the Net ball players? Every one of them. I yeah. Mean, we actually walked in. When we walked in to play a game, they were all getting showered, chased, and, and, and leaving, right? Yeah. So I, I knew all those guys. Billy Pauls, I mean, Julius Irving, Brian. I mean, he was uh, just a, a super nice guy. Yeah, and and a hell of a team they had too. That's for sure. And uh, oh, we, no question about it. I mean, the, the, you know, it was uh, we got to know them pretty well. And I, I used to hang out with Billy Pollock. Needless to say, he's six foot eleven. Every night, every, every time the next morning after I'd been out with him, my my neck was so sore from <laughs> staring up at this guy. Now, didn't he own the salty dog across the street from the Coliseum for a while? No, I don't believe so. Okay. I don't believe so. Uh, but yeah, we, we used to go over there regularly. Uh, that, that was a big hangout. Joe David used to hang out there pretty regularly. Yeah, cause uh, folks may not know, uh, adjacent to the Coliseum and the Salty Dog is Hofstra University where the, the exactly. Jets yeah. used to train. So yeah, Broadway Joe could make an appearance at the Salty Dog. What, what a crowd that must have been in that place, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> We had some good times. Yeah. That, for sure. it, you know, I, I knew a couple of the owners, uh, Jack Sullivan, and, and you know what? They, they treated us so, so well. And nice. It, it was nice to hang out there. You know, a lot of the Jets, you know, like, uh, they, 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 they went there also, you know. Um, right. It, it was, it was kind of our, our favorite hangout because even though there was a lot of people there, they didn't really bother us. You know, they just left us alone. We hung up hung out upstairs and it was just a great place to get together nice nice salty dog folks you could google it hempstead turnpike in uniondale there literally right across the street from the old barn now you you chose long island to settle down bob being from canada uh you you stuck with us uh after you retired <laughs> yeah well I, I i was kind of afraid when i heard that i got drafted by the new york Islanders. first of all my father called me and, and uh, told me that I was drafted by the Islanders. And, and, and I said, who the heck are the Islanders? Oh, no. <laughs> That's a year, right? <laughs> and then my, my second thought was, oh, my God, i got to buy a gun. There's so much crime down there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you, you know what? I, I really expected it to be more of a city you know, like, uh, but Long Island is just a beautiful, beautiful place. And I, I couldn't believe there was beaches. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just a gorgeous place. Oh, yeah. I, I spent my last semester in, in college in London, Bob. And, and as soon as they found out I was from New York, they want to know, how many times have you been mugged? You know, I said, no, no, yeah, no. It's, yeah. <laughs> you're not getting the right picture here. <laughs> New York's yeah, a no, big that's place. So true. I mean, you know, just as an example, it's sort of a ramble on here, but, uh, you know, like Eric played for Calgary. Right. And 
none of the players from the other teams really know what Long Island is all about. You know, they go to the airport, they come down the Long Island Expressway, they go to the Marriott by the Coliseum. But we yeah. invited his whole team from Calgary to come, you know, to dinner at our house. Mm-hmm. And so they took him up from on 25A, you know, and right. they drove up there. And they, they couldn't actually get in our driveway because there's, you know, like so many trees and they, they, but they were astounded by the beauty of Long Island on the North Shore. It yeah. Was, uh, they, they were dumbfounded. It's quite different, yes, as people will find out when they visit. Now, I, I know you've been to UBS, Bob. I, I'd like to get your opinion on the new arena. Okay, I'm going to just ask you, can I make a comeback? Yeah, oh, good, yeah. <laughs> that good, huh? No, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, we we got the royal tour, you know, the alumni and the guys that were there. I mean, everything about that building is just absolutely incredible. You know, they kind of kept that, you, you know, the atmosphere in the building itself, you know. So the, the, the roof is a little lower than most of the other buildings, and it keeps the, the, the noise in the actual rink. Yeah. And that works so well for the players. I mean, the Long Island fans are just the best in the world and they make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I, I, I tell everyone I see, you gotta go see it. Yeah. Chico Resch told me the same thing, Bob. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, to, to see it is to believe it. It's truly a wonder. And I'm looking forward to my first day out there. We're speaking to the great Bob Nystrom tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, let's, for the 500,000th time, Bob, let's recount the goal when you beat Pete Peters. Set that up for us. <laughs> Do you ever get tired of re- recounting that, Bob? <laughs> no, because... Good know, man. It all, it all started off when I started playing with Wayne Merrick and John Tonelli and my, you know, myself, right? Right. Because Johnny and I practiced two-on-twos over and over and over against our teammates. And needless to say, they knew exactly what we were going to do, so we never scored. And and this play that we set up, it, it absolutely worked just fantastic. You know, Lauren Henning had filled in from Wayne Merrick. Right. And so he intercepted a pass, and he saw Johnson Alley coming down the left side and swinging into center, right? And so he fed him with a pass, and, and I kind of cut in behind him. And so when he cut across, Daly jumped and kind of moved forward towards him, and I was able to get behind him. Uh, and Johnny yeah. T just put a, just a perfect, perfect pass on my stick, and I just deflected it in. So finally, one two-on-two worked. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Now, do you do you see Pete Peters a lot? Do you do you, do you guys get to talk about that at all? I only saw him once since we uh, we won it. Oh boy! Okay, and it was at a we we did a charity game in uh, Philadelphia, a softball game, right? Yeah. And all he said to me is, this, "How could you do that to me?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't too hard, <laughs> Pete. Yeah. Pete, I said, we're playing against you, you know. I'm going to try to do that to you, but uh, no. You, you know what? Hey, listen. You feel bad for the guys that lose. Um, you know, it was great to win, but there's always a you know feeling in the in the back of your mind that hey, we could have been the losers also. Sure, could have easily gone the other way. Now, yeah, now each, no doubt. Each guy on on the club knew his role. That's real important, Bob. Talk a little bit about uh, the roles that some of the guys had. 
Well, you know, first of all, I'm going to talk about the two guys that we got late in the season, and that's uh, Kenny Morrow and Butch Goring. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, no one, I don't know if they realize the, the impact that, that Butch has on the team because, you know, here he is, he's a strong second center, you know, and so we were really needing that. And, 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 you know, he was one of these comforting guys, you know, like I'd come back to the bench and I'd smash my stick and he'd be there rubbing my back and saying, okay, okay, don't worry about it. Let's, mm-hmm. You know, next shift, next shift. So he was a real settling person, you know. Right. And Kenny Morrow, who said, uh, I think he said maybe three words the whole time I knew him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was absolutely fantastic. I mean, he had a reach from, from one side of the rink to the other. And just a very solid defenseman. So, uh, both those guys. But, you know, our penalty killing, our power play, everyone had a role. And, you know, we really, really executed the best way that we could. And Al certainly, you know, made that really important for us. But we had guys that sat on the bench, like Lauren Henning, Billy Carroll. They were penalty killers. But, you know what? They didn't complain. They didn't say a word. They went out and did their job, and, and that's all asked, all Al asked for from them. So true, so true, Bob. Um, the, I wanted to ask you about the helmet now, Bob. But why why didn't you <laughs> why didn't you ever go to a helmet? And did they ever try to make you wear a helmet at any point? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that we had to sign a waiver. Oh, okay. I, I just was never really used to it, and, I, and I, I, I'm paying the price now because I've got or I've had so many concussions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as an example, I was, like, in practice, most of my injuries happened in practice. So we were doing two-on-twos one night, or one afternoon, I should say, and I had a collision with uh, Billy Harris. And so I, I woke up on the training room table, and, and, the, and the trainer says, okay, what's your name? I said, Bob, nice to me. He says, uh, what day is it? I said, well, I think it's Tuesday. And then he says, what's your wife's name? I said, oh, I'm not married. Oh, boy. And I said, he, he says to me, no, seriously, what's your wife's name? I said, <laughs> I'm not married. <laughs> and I'd gotten married that summer, and I swear to God, I didn't remember. Not so good, Bob. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife didn't like that. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that, that's a that's a real good one. Now, you worked with um, Laura Stam, who worked with a lot of players. She was really a pioneer in uh, teaching skating to you guys. And uh, do you know Barbara Williams? Uh, she we had her on the program once too. She said she used to work with uh, with you guys over at uh, Republic. Yes, yeah. Laura started off with me, and you know Bill Tory suggested, and, and this was kind of a a knock, you know, he says, you know, Bob, you got to really work on your skating, and we've, we've got someone we'd like to introduce you to, you know. Yeah. So I'm not going to say no. I, I I went with her, you know, and we, we at 6 o'clock in the morning, we were over at Skateland, and she was, you know, working on my balance and my stride and everything like that. And I have to tell you that she was one of the nicest, best people that I've ever met, and she helped me immensely. She really did. Wonderful. And, you know, I'm still in touch with her. Uh, I just talked to her son. And so she's struggling with a little bit of Alzheimer's. But I got a chance to talk to her, and she's just a sweetheart. And she really helped me so much in, in, in making it to the, the major leagues. 
glowing praise from Bob Nystrom tonight about Laura Stam on the program. Now, uh, the the fourth cup go, driving for five, Bob. Uh, is what do you think you could have done a little better to beat Edmonton? What was the cause of you guys losing that series? Were, were they the better team? Did they execute uh, more proficiently? Give us your thoughts. So there's two things. They finally got serious. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. That was one. Yeah. Yeah, because they were a group of partying guys, and I think when they when we beat them in the fourth cup. You know, Gretzky even mentions in his book, he says, he looked in the room and all of us were with ice packs and this and that, you know, training room and everything like that. And they finally got serious and said, hey, listen, we've got enough talent here to win the cup. And from our side, we just ran out of steam. Yeah. You know, like it, it was four long years and a lot of series. And you know what? We just couldn't couldn't get over the hump. Easy, easy, yeah. That's looking at it the easy way. Sure, Bob, definitely. I can see that. Yeah, you're, you're talking twenty, thirty games. Yeah, you know, like it's um, and each and every year, you know. And then we also had some key injuries, you know. And I'm not making excuses, but you know what, Edmonton had an excellent team, so I'd rather right. lose to them than somebody else. And then they went, they went their own way, uh, writing yeah. their book. And, uh, as you say, Bob, certainly a great hockey club. Now, oh, do, do any of the cups stand out in your mind? Yeah, the fourth one, fourth one. Well, hey, listen, the first one was always, you know, great. To sure. Get. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the fourth series, the fourth time, uh, you know, we beat Edmonton. And I think we allowed six goals, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, yeah. And and that was a tribute to Al Arbor because he always told us that defense comes first, offense comes second, you know? Yes. And so it was a tribute to him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just relay a story to you that, that just stuck in my mind. And, and it, it was in the third period of, of the last game, and we're ahead by one goal, and they pulled the goaltender. And so Johnny T, myself, and Merrick are out on the ice, and, and uh, so we're hemmed in our zone, and then we start to break out, and Kenny Moore is the guy that's breaking out, and needless to say, he wasn't one of the fastest guys on the team. Mm-hmm. So Johnny T and I are yelling at him, pass us a puck, pass a puck. And so he skated calmly over the red line and put it into the empty net, right? Yeah. So when we gathered around him, we went in to congratulate him. All he said to us was, I love you guys. I love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that really stuck with me because we really had such a good, good rapport on the team. And everyone, you know, liked everybody else. And it was just a, a great group of guys. Well, Kenny Morrow, for those folks who may not be familiar, Kenny Morrow is a guy, Bob, that you'd like to go, uh, take, send him down to 7-Eleven and buy lottery tickets for you. Uh, the, the guy, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah, the, the guy wins, uh, the, the gold medal in Lake Placid. Then he comes to the Islanders and just proceeds to reel off four Stanley Cups. I mean, just, just yeah. your no- normal everyday five year run, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not sure whether it's, it's 
sure or not, but I heard that he won his collegiate championship also. Oh, man. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not positive <laughs> on that, but that's what I heard. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, that's, yeah uh, that yeah. would be the ultimate. <laughs> We're speaking with I Bob Nice. a little while ago. I actually was at the game with him just recently. He's doing real well. Yeah, he's still with the club, isn't he, Bob? Yeah, he scouts for them. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, I think you turned out to be one of Coach Arbor's favorites. Uh, give us a, a little more insight on, on the coaching methods and the style of Al Arbor, the great Hall of Famer. Well, I, uh, I was just looking at a speech that I made at his, uh, funeral. And I, I, I gotta tell you what, he was one of the most amazing men that I've known. And he probably taught me uh, so many le- lessons and, and so many things that I, I just can't think of enough. You know, like aside from my parents, he had the biggest impact on my entire life, and I, I still leave by some of the things, the, the things that he he taught us. I mean, he he can he can walk into the room and and, and, and make up a, a motivational speech about alignment climbing a telephone pole during the middle of the winter. Yeah. I, I mean, he was just absolutely incredible guy. And the one thing that he taught me more than anything else is never fear losing. He says, if you can do your best, that's all you can ask for. And he says, who would you rather be, the guy on your toes attacking, 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 and going to score the winning goal, or the guy that sits on his heels and worries about making a mistake? Great. And that, that's written right here on the side of my desk with all my papers because it, it applies to, to hockey, everything. To life too. Yeah. To, to me, oh, Bob, yeah. it seems yeah. like Al was, uh, in a way the Gil Hodges of the Islanders, if you, if you will. I mean, uh-huh. he, he did a lot for, for his players. He, uh, taught them. Uh, tremendous lessons, and it, 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 that's the way I equate Al uh, to you guys. Yeah, well, I'm going to just say to you, and, and I'm sure you met Al in, uh, on many occasions, but when was there one time that he ever took the accolades for a win or a series win? I mean, he he never he never took the accolades. He always pushed that onto the players. Mm-hmm. The guys played really good. The goalie was really good, uh, and, and yet he was the the, the the biggest factor in us winning. Yes, he was certainly the great Hall of Fame coach Al Arbonnet. Oh, now, man. Bob, you you never shied away from dropping the gloves. Let's put it that way. Uh, to to who do you owe your prowess as, as uh, in pugilism? Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, it started off in junior, you know, like I yeah. did in junior in Western Canada. And so we, we got $80 a month, you know, and, and this kid in Penticton broke my glasses. And, and, and I was so pissed at that. Yeah. I, I got in my first fight, right? But then I met Gary Howitt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so we lived in an apartment over in, uh, in Westbury. And, you know, the first thing that we did when we got into town, we bought headgear and boxing gloves. And so I'm going to have to say that, that, that Gary Howard had a pretty big impact on my fighting ability. Yeah, Gary, we man. Would fight in, <laughs> yeah, we would fight in the backyard, and, and the people there that lived there must have thought we were crazy. 
Yeah, he but. he was not afraid to drop those gloves either, oh. Bob. No, Gary Howard, oh. a, a little guy, folks. Gary Howard, a little guy, but you you, you wouldn't want to tango with this guy. He's like t- Ty Domi, sort of a, a player oh, like my that, God. right? So, so Bill, I, Bill, I have to tell you, you know, he'll tell you he's five foot nine, but really he's only five foot eight and a half. Oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but well, he was one of the toughest little buggers. Yeah, and, and we lived together for a couple of years, and, and as soon as we, you know, finished dinner, he said, "Come on, let's wrestle." Oh man, <laughs> he, he was just a great guy, and and you know what? I just talked to him the other day, and he looks great. I mean, he's still roping calves, and yeah, and. and just living the life. A good man, Gary Howard. Yeah, and then, and then. Uh, to 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 add insult to injury for opponents, you have Jethro, who uh, you know would take on anybody. He he didn't really go looking for it, but if, if you if you uh, looked at him uh, the wrong way or one of his teammates, he'd take it take it to you. Yeah, well, you know what, Clark and I roomed together for quite a while, and this is just a wonderful human being. Sure, uh, yeah, great guy. You know he's. He's probably, you know, from a joke telling standpoint, the best joke teller I've ever, you know, heard. <laughs> but more than anything else, you know, he he's just such a soft touch. You know, he cries at the drop of a hat. He's got a tremendous charity. He's always out there doing things for the community. And I just have the most respect for this guy. But he'd be the first guy to break into tears if someone said something. Uh, but he was one tough customer. That's one Clark Gillies, customer. folks. If if you don't know who we're talking about, I had had him on the program once, Bob, and he talked about uh, a little incident he had with Ed, Ed Hospodar, and he went oh, to man. he went to visit him in the hospital, and he said, "I'm looking for the guy who used to look like Ed Hospodar. Where is he?" <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I want to say something as far as that goes too. You know when I, I when I got my I had my eye injury and I'd uh, been in, in the city and I had surgery right right and so I hear a knock on the door and, and so I say come on in and you know who it was Nick Fatiu oh. with a box of cookies yeah okay so there really is a camaraderie between players I mean it I, I was just so taken aback by it and I was so appreciative of it but. You know, hockey players off the ice, you know, they're, they're just the greatest guys. And, and sometimes, yeah, we do fight, but we've got a lot of respect for the other guy. We'd never try to hurt him where he would be out of the league. I, I agree with you 100%, Bob. Uh, hockey players I have on the program, wonderful guys. Uh, they, they really treat you well, and, and they're a pleasure to speak with. Now, I, I just want to ask you quick. I re- thought, think that I remember you... Uh, in some of the jobs that I had in the past, uh, 633 Third Avenue, was that you? Yeah, I was in the city for, I'll tell you, I, I was in the city for maybe two and a half months. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. I remember seeing you in the elevator, and then I remember seeing you in the yeah. elevator on uh, <laughs> Express Drive South over in Melville, in that building. Yeah, oh, I, yeah no, I, but... I lasted for a short time in the city, and I, I came home one day, and I said to my wife, I said, if that's life, 
then I don't want it. Yeah, I know. Because I, I, I just <laughs> couldn't take the I did, I I did it for 20 years. Yeah, I, I know exactly yeah. where, you, where you're going, Bob. That yeah, was, so I, I, I worked at a couple of different places, you know, like right now my office is in Huntington. That's good. Cool. Yeah, good. You know, I was in Belleville for a while. I was in Westbury for a while. But more than anything else, like I, I, re- I really enjoyed it. I mean, the fact of the matter is people treated me like gold, so I, I have no complaints. The New York fan will. They'll, they'll do that, Bob. Before we go, I just want to ask you, uh, how is Mike Bossy feeling? I don't know, Bill. Okay. You know, I, I'm going to tell you right now that I wrote him a, a long email. I said, you could beat this, you know, and this. And so I, I haven't gotten a response, and, and many of the guys have not received a response. Uh, you know, Trotch was pretty close to them, you know, uh, Brian. Sure. And so he kind of fills in a little bit, but, but Boss just doesn't want to talk to anybody right now. Okay. Understood. And, and you know what? I, I can understand that. Right. I, I feel so bad for him, and I wish him the best, but I, I can also understand that he, he just doesn't want to communicate right now. Ah, as we said, Bob, understood. That's for sure. Well, Bob Nystrom, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you with me tonight. Thanks for taking time out of your finally, night. Finally, yeah, finally. Yeah, we, we did it. We did it, Bob. Yeah. I was avoiding you as much as I could. Yeah, I know. Most people do. Usually it's the women, though, Bob, that avoid me. That's, that's the story there. But uh, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in Merrick. You know what? It's my pleasure anytime you know that. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. All the best. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks to you. I can't believe it's here already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you I too, know. Bill. Have a good one there, pal. You too, Bob. That's Bob Nystrom, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will talk with writer Arthur Staple. He's got a new book on the Islanders. All Islanders all the time here tonight. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. Uh, still waiting for the Mets to name their new manager. Now, I'm hoping for Buck Showalter. I'm in the Buck camp. Uh... This way, there will always be at least two Seinfeld stars in the ballpark at all times. You can't have enough of those folks around. Uh, they really can't get this one wrong, folks. They 
they, they can't afford to have another guy learn on the job as, as they have in the past. And as far as the Hall of Fame vote that we spoke, spoke about last week, um, the, the writers votes coming up in January, but the, uh, the veterans committee, the golden, uh, days and the, uh, early baseball committees, Gil Hodges finally entering, uh, through the portals, those ha- hollowed doors up there in Cooperstown. Uh, as, as you know, we spoke to Bob Clappish about that last week. Um, a lot of question marks on the writer's ballot, and uh, hopefully we'll get Bob back or one of his uh, colleagues from the Baseball Writers Association of America to talk about that in the new year. Right now, we will carry on, my wayward sons. Our next guest is a senior writer for The Athletic, covering the New York Islanders and the NHL. He previously spent 20 years at Newsday, covering the Islanders, as well as uh, other topics along the way uh, in the world of sports. He also hosts a podcast called No Sleep Till Belmont. We'll talk to him about that. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Arthur Staple. Arthur, good evening. How you doing, Bill? Not, not too bad, not too bad. Hope everything's well with you, Arthur. Doing all right. Hopefully you as well. Okay, here we go. Now, how far back do you go with the Islanders, Arthur? <laughs> well, uh, I grew up in uh, in New York City, pretty close to Madison Square Garden. So okay. kind of by default, thanks to my family, I was a Ranger fan growing up in the, in the early 80s, which was not a great time to be a Ranger fan when it came to the Islanders. So I certainly was well aware of how good the Islanders were when I was a kid and um, – you know, from then on, when I started my sports writing career, I, I was—I uh, kind of dropped my fandom and was willing to go wherever and covered the Rangers for a little bit way back when in the early 2000s. Uh-huh. And became intimately acquainted with the Islanders starting around, I guess, 2010 okay. uh, at Newsday when I was uh, assigned back to do hockey. And uh, 2011, I think, was my first year back on a on the traveling beat and. Um, a decade of, of covering them for Newsday and for the Athletic. I certainly uh, feel like I know uh, a lot about the team and the organization, and certainly the fans. Getting to know lots of them throughout my time there. It's uh, it's a unique fan base, and, and now that I'm kind of transitioning away to go cover the Rangers again uh, due to some assignment changes at the mm-hmm. Athletic, it's it's a reminder that there is no fan base like the Islanders fan base. It's uh, it's one of a kind, maybe even in the entire NHL, about how passionate they are and, and how much they care about their team and, and how 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 deeply they feel a lot of things from day to day that maybe you don't really see in a lot of other fan bases. Very good, Arthur. Well put. Now, uh, I was a Ranger fan when I was a, a young kid. Uh, people think I'm a bandwagoner, but no, I came aboard with the Islanders when they when they first moved. Uh, to Long Island back in 72 or so. And I, I remember when they won 12 games the first year. I mean, uh, it, it was horrible. But it, it was great to have hockey in that building along with the great New York Nets. It, it, you just couldn't beat it. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Arthur, what's your opinion of the UBS arena? It's great. Yeah. You know, it's, that's what Bobby Nystrom it, said. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's got, you know, it's, it's still got some, some things that need ironing out, and obviously the challenge of finishing uh, a billion-dollar project like that during the pandemic, uh, and now with, you know, I think supply chain issues affect everybody, whether you're walking through the supermarket and not finding the things that you want to, I imagine, 
big things like lumber and, and wiring and all the things you need to make uh, make a building look as special as that one is. Um, so it's understandable that it's not quite a hundred percent done, where every every corner of every of every uh, part of that building is is not completely finished. And um, you know, I think some fans obviously have felt the the sting. The parking situation is not completely ironed out yet either, mm-hmm. but um, it's pretty darn nice. And and just even walking around and you see a lot of the same faces that I saw unhappily in Brooklyn for a few years. Oh boy, and, yeah. Uh, happily in the Coliseum, but still in that Coliseum environment. And now you see them, um, you know, in this, in this incredibly nice new palace. And, uh, I think there's just a feeling of disbelief still, obviously the, the on ice product has been a little bit frustrating, but I think all of the longtime fans that I know can see the big picture and see how important this place is just for self-esteem, just to know that, that there's nothing, to be made fun of to be a fan of this, of this <laughs> right. team anymore. We finally so, have a home. Yeah. That's right. Nobody nobody's gonna come in as a visiting team or a visiting fan and make fun of the, the, the dumpy surroundings of the Coliseum or make fun of the off kilter scoreboard uh and the seats you can't see the whole ice from in Brooklyn. This is a building built for hockey. It's built by the owners with, with lots of good partners. Uh it's got lots of touches that are important to Islander fans. Uh, John Ledecky and Scott Malkin really were responsive, I think, in, in listening to a lot of fans' requests and recommendations and being able to incorporate some of those touches. Um, it's, uh, it's a great home and, and, uh, you know, regardless of what's happening on the ice this year, it's, it's something that's going to stand out for a long time to come. Right. It seems like, Arthur, that they, they got it right. They, they hit a home run here. And as you say, uh, the fans really deserve it after, after sticking it out in Brooklyn for those years and, uh, you know, having the Coliseum, uh, called sort of like a, a Shea Stadium type dump. But, uh, the people still revered it. But, uh, it's nice to have a new home. That's for sure. Now, I want to talk, uh, about the new book, Arthur. It's called 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And as I said earlier to Bob Nystrom, I better read this book quick and get some of the things in because I don't know when uh, my number's coming up. Right, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's take a look at some of the items in here. But talk about Bob Nystrom. He was just on the air with us. Uh, give us a little uh, spiel about Bob from, from uh, the book here, Arthur. You know, he's he's a guy who went from, you know, uh, grew up in Western Canada like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the key guys on those teams, Brian Trache, Clark Gillies, Bobby Bourne, they're all Western Canadian guys. Right. Um, and, you know, hearing from Bob the story of when he found, you know, he found out he was drafted, uh, you know, had been working over the summer back home, uh, and someone said, you're going to New York. And he said, better go buy a gun. Oh, no, yeah. Early 1970s. <laughs> Not the not the time that I think a lot of people that weren't in New York wanted to come to New York, but yeah. I, you know, I think like a lot of people, he came to find out that the Islanders uh, and Long Island were not was not New York City, and that there were a lot of things to like about living and working on Long Island. Um, not the state of the team when he came in, you know. I think he was he was lucky. He was uh, in New Haven and in the minors for most of that awful first year, and was able to come up and kind of uh, you know. Him and Gary Howitt came up at the same time, you know, uh, a toy tiger who uh, was one of the smallest but toughest guys, I think, in the league during That's the 70s. That's for sure, yeah. And, uh, and Nystrom really, you know, he kind of helped form that identity 
for the Islanders. There's a reason that he's, his name is on the player's player award, essentially, uh, you know, and, and how much he's embraced being here, married a Long Island girl, stuck around, uh, you know, as, for many, many years, uh, you know, and just the passion. I, you know, even before writing this book, just being able to, to talk to him and, and, uh, see even when he was, you know, just working as an ambassador for the team, he'd come to practices after a loss and he looked like, uh, you know, he'd played in that game. And this was, you know, early 2010s when the team was still struggling to gain some traction. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, his, his association with the team now, we're almost, in, you know, we're into five decades. And, and I think of all the stars that they have, he's the one that kind of embodies what this franchise has meant to Long Island, to the, to the, blue collar you know fans that kind of form the core of this uh this organization's fan base he was the one that meant the most and certainly you know even at that scored a ton of big goals you know mm-hmm. um leads, i think he has the most overtime playoff goals of any islander even from that era which is uh, pretty crazy considering all the stars that they had but he meant a lot and uh, the fact that he was the one that scored the most important goal you know brian trache said to me he's like bobby nystrom made me a champion and uh that goal kind of coming when it did at the dawn of, uh, of hockey as a TV sport in the United States, get game was on TV, uh, on national TV. And, you know, I think it really, it put the Islanders on the map, obviously it put him on the map with the, with the flowing blonde hair and, uh, and kind of, you know, stood out as really that signature Stanley cup winning goal. I think that a lot of people of a certain age remember, even if they're not Islander fans. Nice words from Trotz, a Hall of Famer about Bob Nystrom. <laughs> Definitely Arthur. And I did ask him tonight, about uh, the moniker Mr. Islander, I said, does it, does it bother you at all? Or, you know, you ever get tired of hearing that? And he he just said, no, that that's the highest praise they could give me is to call me Mr. Islander. And I thought that was a great answer. I really did. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, like I said, it, there, there's players in the hockey, you know, in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame, um, legendary players, obviously Dennis Potvin, Mike Bossy, Billy Smith, Trottier, uh, guys maybe with more skill with lots more points but uh but the heartbeat of that team lived in guys like howitt you know who left before they started winning and definitely uh, you know in clark gillies the captain before dennis potvin but definitely in a guy like bob nystrom uh who was a fourth liner kind of kind of like that identity line that they have now with mm-hmm. Kate Zizekis and cal clutterbuck and matt martin he was on the original one with andre salaran um you know, it's interesting to see some of the parallels from then to now that uh, the Islanders kind of uh, the current day Islanders in the last few years under Lou Lamarillo and Barry Trotz have had to rebuild their identity after some wayward years. Uh, and when they started off as that 12 win expansion team that you talked about, they needed to build an identity under Al Arbor and, and Nystrom was a big part of it. And one thing I forgot to ask Bob about Arthur and, uh, the, this uh, is interesting to statistic is that the Islanders are the first Stanley Cup winning team to have Europeans on the roster. Yeah, you know, Bill Torrey was a genius in so many different aspects of, of what he was able to accomplish as a GM, the trades that he made, you know, fleecing a lot of other GMs, you know. Sure. Zach Parisi, Zach Parisi on the current Islanders, it's, it's interesting to remember when the Islanders put themselves on the map in 1975 in the playoffs, the big goal was was J.P. Parise, Zach's father, and he right. Bill Torrey had gotten gotten him in a midseason trade from the North Stars. Um, he'd also gotten Jude Duran a Jude couple Duran, days Duran, right, right around that same time from Minnesota. Um, so so Bill's 
genius was was built on trades, but it was also built on a lot of on a lot of scouting and doing some things that other people wouldn't do. And Anders Kaller, who you're talking about, was one of those guys, right? You know, a, a veteran pro in Sweden uh, had come to a couple camps in North America, never really latched on, but but Tori could see what this guy brought, and uh, you know, he's a guy who's who's in the Islanders' record books. He's got the most shorthanded goals of anybody in Islanders' history. Um, a real important player, and obviously Stefan Pearson, mm-hmm. uh, and then Thomas Janssen after him. Uh, Stefan Pearson drafted, I think, in the 11th round, um, came up, became such an important power play uh, player alongside Dennis Potvin. Incredible skill. I think, you know, the, the perception, obviously, of European players back then was they weren't tough enough to play in the, in the 70s and 80s in the rough-and-tumble North American style in the NHL, but, but Bill Torrey had a talented team. He had a team that also had a lot of toughness, and he felt like those guys could do a lot more uh, than just take the abuse. and uh, And they really fit in well, you know. And I think he, he kind of kept that pipeline rolling. I, I think if you were a young Swedish player uh, coming up and you saw the success that Anders Kaller had, that, that Stefan Pearson had, you, you were willing to come over and be a part of it because it felt like a welcoming environment, and that was obviously huge. That, that it was. That it was, Arthur. Arthur Staple with us tonight from The Athletic. The book is A Hundred Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Uh, w- one thing that, that uh, Islander fans seemed to despise back in the day, but I, I think it's uh, nostalgia now, and uh, I, I never hated it myself, uh, if I can come out and admit that. <laughs> the Fisherman. I, I've, I had Nick Hershon wrote a great book about yeah. uh, We Want Fish Sticks, about the logo change and uh, just the whole psychology and that on the fans and everything. What's your take on the fishermen, Arthur? You know, it, it is nice as nostalgia now for sure. And I think when you take the sting of what was going on around the team at the time of the logo change, in the 90s, the, the, the gang of four, the, the owners, the minority owners that kind of took over when John Pickett decided he had enough of running the team and, and Bill Torrey was, uh, was just finishing up his run. Al Arbor had finished up his run as coach. They were really kind of more interested in, in a fresh start rather than embracing an incredible, you know, run of a, de- you know, in a decade with the four Stanley Cups and 19 straight playoff series. Um, I think it was kind of, felt like they were overthinking things because they wanted to take the team in a new direction or wanted a new building. Um, and finances were, were so much at the heart of all the problems that they had in the 1990s beyond that great run to the, to the conference finals they had in 93, which is kind of the last hurrah for, for Al Arbor. Right. Um, you, you know, so I think at the time it was just not something that was well-received. They had some decent young guys, you know, guys like Brian McCabe, uh, who would go on to have a really long career, was a very young captain of the team. Pat Flatley was just finishing his long run and had also been a captain, uh, you know, a long-serving Islander, came in at the tail end of the, the championship run along with Pat LaFontaine. Um, so they still had some players that, that had a lot of pride uh, in being an Islander and, and wearing that uniform, and I think – the, the instant ridicule that came with it because they were trying to change something that didn't necessarily need to be changed. And, uh, Good point. you know, I think, yeah. I think you, you talk to Islander fans now, and obviously there's a lot of longtime Islander fans who go back to, like you do, back to the 70s, back to the original days, back before the championships. Um, pride in history is super important with this franchise, as it should be. It's, it's you know, 
it's the it's the one of the greatest expansion team stories in pro sports in North America. The right. way that they were able to build what they built in less than a decade and be the you know the one of the most dominant teams of the last forty years. So I think um, making those kind of changes when the team was also struggling, when the team was still trying to you know trying to regain its footing in the league, when the finances were difficult, when they were searching for a new building, to then suddenly toss aside would have become a classic logo that was associated with champions just didn't sit right. And then kind of the, the cartoonish aspect of the fishermen really <laughs> added to it. So it's nice to see the younger generation of fans embracing it, but I can certainly understand. And I've talked to Nick and his book was incredibly valuable to me in research for this book that I did. Good. That's um, nice. You, you can certainly understand why fans of a certain vintage may get the, the shakes a little bit when they see those fishermen jerseys because it does not signify a great era in Islanders history. That is true, Arthur. But I want to tell you, they had up for auction uh, fishermen jerseys that they wore during uh, pregame skate. And I tell you, you couldn't touch these. I mean, I, I said, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bid on one of these and grab grab one of these for myself. Forget it. You know, yeah. they, they were going for thousands. I couldn't believe it. So, so I, I think... People have finally, as we said, they've embraced it, and they realize it's a part of the past, not a great part of the past, but uh, it, it is, uh, it's nostalgia, and it, it's uh, good on memorabilia, and the Islanders are selling stuff with this on it, so the the rest, like we said, is history. We are speaking tonight with Arthur Staple, his book, again, a hundred things Islander fans should know and do before they die. Now, one thing I found interesting, Arthur, in the book is you talk about villains and also public enemy number one. Let's get into these guys. <laughs> well, I think, again, if you meet an Islander fan of a certain age uh, and you say the name Dale Hunter, oh yeah, the, the eyes go a little bit dark, um, and rightfully so. You know, it was... Uh, we think back to, like I mentioned earlier, 1992-93, the Islanders had already undergone some big changes in the previous couple of years. Bill Torrey, uh, there was a big contract dispute with him and Pat LaFontaine. LaFontaine vowed never to wear the Islander jersey again after wearing it proudly for almost a decade. So Torrey was forced to trade him. The same day, he trades Brent Sutter, who's the last link to the Stanley Cup championship teams. And you'd think, okay, this team is just packing it in and rebuilding. But within a year or a year and a half, because of the guys that they got in those two trades that Torrey was able to kind of wrangle. And Torrey wasn't even around to see the fruits of it. He'd already stepped away um, and actually gone to work with the, the expansion Florida Panthers, and Don mm-hmm. Maloney was the GM. But Pierre Turgeon, Benoit Hogue, who they'd gotten from Buffalo for LaFontaine, Steve Thomas, uh, who was kind of the centerpiece guy that they brought back from Chicago for Brent Sutter. Those guys were high-flying offensive players, and the Islanders put together a great run. Glenn Healy stood on his head to, to kind of get them through the playoffs and um, winning winning that first round against the Capitals, uh, you know, a team that was probably pretty heavily favored against the Islanders. Ray Ferraro had, a, had an unreal streak in that series, scoring goals. And the, obviously the incident after Pierre Turgeon scored what seemed to be the clinching goal in game six at the Coliseum, Dale Hunter throws him into the board, the separated shoulder, knocked him out for the the bulk of the playoffs he did return in the conference finals but it wasn't really the same after that mm-hmm. um it's one of the dirtiest plays probably ever in the history of the nhl a very violent sport where crazy things happen but it was one of those uh one of those awful moments and i think you know under fans i do uh, i do feel for them i think they feel a lot of the times that 
um, especially since the since the championship year ended that there's that there's uh, kind of a what can happen next to this organization with all of the the stops and starts with an arena and crazy ownership situations and that play really kind of signified the on ice what what else could happen they finally yeah. break through after a couple of years of, of really of not making the playoffs and not succeeding uh, it seems seemed you know Tory was gone Arbor seemed like he was ready to retire and they have they pull off a, a pretty big upset, beating the Capitals, and then their best player gets dumped into the boards in, in just an unnecessary play. So Dale Hunter's definitely up there. You know, I think if you skip ahead a generation, Darcy Tucker, oh, yeah. uh, who was with the, with the Leafs uh, in, that, in that incredibly intense, physical, violent 2002 playoff series when the Islanders, again, after wandering in the wilderness for a long time uh, with Charles Wong owning the team, Mike Milbury, uh, making some good moves before that season, including hiring uh, a rookie coach and Peter Laviolette, uh, the trades for Michael Pekka and Alexi Yashin, picking up Chris Osgood, uh, off of, ex- off of, uh, preseason waivers to, to be in net. Uh, and they had a great start to that year and a really tough series with the Leafs that, um, turned, I think, on Darcy Tucker, low bridging Pekka, tearing up his knee. Um, yep. You know, that, that was, uh, that's a guy, I think you mentioned him and, and, and then those younger generation of fans get pretty upset. So those two guys, as far as posing players, certainly stand out. And I'm obviously had to mention a guy who played for the Islanders and Kirk Muller, who has a sterling reputation around the league, had been, you know, a longtime captain of the Devils, played in Montreal, won a Stanley Cup there, uh, and Milbury traded for him right around that fisherman era time in the mid nineties, uh, didn't want to come play for the Islanders, came reluctantly, played a bit, didn't seem very interested, was sent home, finally traded away. Uh, the saga pretty much lasted a calendar year. It cost Don Maloney his general manager's job. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those situations that kind of piled on one on top of the other with the, as you mentioned before, the ownership situation being, being so tenuous and, and penny pinching. Personnel coming in and out, front office people coming in and out, and they bring in a guy with a with a reputation like Kirk Muller, and he basically says, "Thanks, but no thanks. I don't want. I want no part of this." So, yeah. um, it uh, it stands out, I think, for a lot of Islander fans as well that this was a guy. You know, he's a guy that's had a long coaching career too in the NHL. He's been in a, a head coach and an associate coach for a very long time. Again, an incredible reputation, but I don't think he'd ever want to really talk about his year. With the Islanders, and I don't think Islander fans want to talk about it too much either. No, no, that's for sure, Arthur. Arthur Staple with us tonight. His book is called 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, Not After, Before They Die. (laughs) And uh, you'll find snippets of information and nuggets like that throughout this book, folks. You'll read about the villains in Islander history. You'll read about... uh, the chant at Madison Square Garden. Now, if you don't know what that is, you haven't been around too too long. But uh, <laughs> there's kids that weren't even born yelling uh, "Potvin sucks" at, at the uh, garden these days. So it, it, it's a matter of history, folks. But this is a, a sensational book. I, I want to ask you quickly, Arthur, who's your favorite all-time Islander? Well, that's an interesting one to me. You know. I, when I would, like I said, when I was a kid, I was a, a suffering Ranger fan as a 10, 11 year old watching the Islanders win Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup. Uh, and, and for me, the guy that I had the most respect for was Mike Bossy. And, uh, you know, he was a guy who looked like, uh, I think me as a 10 year old probably weighed about as much as he did as a, as an adult who was not just, 
any adult, but one of the premier goal scorers in the game. And, and, and as I researched the book and talked to some of his teammates, and I think, you know, a lot of the Islander world knows and the hockey world knows that, that Mike is battling lung cancer and, um, you know, it's a difficult situation for him. And I think it's difficult for a lot of his longtime teammates to accept. This is a guy who played through concussions, bad back that ended up costing him his career. And maybe if he'd been able to play another five or six years, he'd be the guy that Alex Ovechkin is chasing right now as the all-time mm-hmm. leading goal scorer, because he was such a prolific scorer and a guy who could score from anywhere. Um, took a beating um you know we think about the gretzky's and uh, and the modern day guys the mcdavid's the guys that can fly past everybody that take a little bit you know take a little too much abuse and we and we look at Connor mcdavid now and we say oh this guy deserves more penalty calls well uh, you know i don't want to be that nostalgia guy but i think if you go back and watch games from the islanders heyday and you see the sort of abuse that mike bossy took you'd say, hmm, maybe Connor McDavid doesn't have it so bad right that's now. That's for sure. Well, that, 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 that's was. a great answer, Arthur. Uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you with us. Take time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on the island. The book again, folks, it, it's from, from Triumph, right, Arthur? It is. Yes, our friends in Chicago, Triumph Books. It's titled 100 Things Islander Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Stay well, Arthur. We wish you nothing but the best. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks so much. Thank Have you. a good night. That's Arthur Staple, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Bobby Nystrom and Arthur Staple, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. Up next, who's up next, Andy? Andy's up next, folks. Stay put. You don't want to miss it. See you next on uh, next Sunday, December the 19th. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.